Well, good morning. Would you please stand with this morning for our responsive reading? We will do uh, Psalm 40. We'll do it in its entirety. You'll find that in the Pew Bibles on page 574, Psalm 40. I will begin by reading the first congregation, the even number verses. We'll read the entire Psalm, 17 verses. Okay, Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord with his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond the number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me, so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those who appall because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Amen. Please be seated. And this is a uh, psalm from David. And again, in his life, there were so many different areas that he relied upon God. And he trusted in God. The situations where his life was at, uh, at risk of being lost and, and different uh, enemies were coming about him. But you see in this particular, or in all the psalms that he writes, where he talks about his trust in God. And though... He waited patiently. God was faithful to hear his cry. And in verse uh, 2, where he's brought up out of the pit of destruction, out of the mire and the clay, 
Isn't that where all people are placed? When we are lost in our sins, separated from God, we are also as though in the mire and in the pit. But where does, what does God do? He restores him into a, a communion with God, and he sets his feet upon a rock, and which making his footsteps firm. That rock, of course, we read so often in the scriptures is the is that rock of Jesus Christ, whom we are placed upon, and that and there we can take a sure-footed walk through this world. We read, read in uh, the New Testament about um, don't build your house on a, on a, uh, on sand that can be washed away, rather build it on a sturdy rock where it would stand. And that's where our faith lies, on Jesus Christ himself. And in being placed in that position, we can sing a new song. We can sing a song of which we know in our heart. Because we know God, we know Jesus Christ intimately through his word, through prayer, our relationship. After all, he has touched us. Even when we were lost in that mire, he inclined to hear our cry. He has called us so that that new song is one of praise and one that we say, yes, we trust in the Lord. That, is, that, um, that trust is not in teachings of man or in lessons of, of, um, of the intellectuals who have come up with their own philosophies and their own ways of dealing with things, but our trust remains in God and in, in his word. For if it is in here and you study it in its context, in its proper perspective, you can see that you can rely upon this word entirely to know who our Savior is and what he has done for us. Um, as he con- continues through this psalm, though he was uh, at a time when Israel was under law, he talks about it in verse 6 where he says, Sacrifice and meal offering is not what you desire. It, 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 it's not burnt offering nor sin offering that's required. It is that trust in God himself. The works of man do not bring us closer to God. It is God who draws us closer to him. In verse 7, it almost sounds as though it's the talking of Jesus himself. I Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. Uh, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. The Lord is written in my heart, where it is what, God, what Jesus came to do, to present God to mankind, to bring us into that relationship through his death, uh, burial, resurrection, and then in his return, we see him in the fullness of the true God that he is. So then throughout the rest of the, the psalm, it just talks about how iniquities and sin can get us down, but the one in whom we trust, the one in who has uh, cleanse us of our sins. He is the one who restores us back to life, a life that is eternal. And it's just it's just beautiful to read these psalms as um, probably written as songs that can be sung. No, I won't sing it for you, uh, but but that they are as poetry, and you can see that they come from the heart. And we read them, and we kind of just go through each stanza. But each one carries an emotional aspect of the author's relationship with God as well. Okay, amen.
I thought it was beautiful to read through that psalm and to see that the acronym OMG is more than just an acronym, that it's actually a way that we call upon God, OMG being oh my God, that it's, you know, it's a beautiful reality of us calling upon God. And uh, what I want to do is bring your mind back to what I preached about last week. In preaching through the details of Leviticus chapters 13 through 14, I explained the skin disease, Sarat, which rather than being merely a contagious skin disease, is understood to be a divine judgment upon those who are guilty of Lashan Hara in the Hebrew, which means evil speech. Evil speech could be further outlined to be divisive, derogatory, or slanderous speech. And yes, even if it's true, it's still considered Lashan Hara, evil speech. Also, I detailed Lashan Tov, or what is known as good speech, wherein I sought to highlight that as Christ's ambassadors, representing the kingdom of God, we are to bring forth the healing of the nations, which requires taming our tongue and making all of our words bring forth enrichment, edification, and encouragement in all that we do. In our contemporary time, there sure is a lot of disagreement regarding proper use of speech. We regularly hear about our right to free speech, the common problem and confusion regarding hate speech. But rather, what I'd like to bring us into this morning is talking about right speech. Basically, saying the right things at the right time. So, that brings us to the obvious question. Is there ever an appropriate time or context in which we should use sharp words towards someone or something or a situation? Or are we always to be nicey-nicey? As children, we, are, we were told, you're only supposed to use nice words, right? I imagine everybody else, not only myself, I was told when I was a kid, you know, you're only allowed to use nice words. You only should ever use nice words to talk about anything. So much the same in Christ. When we first come to Christ, we're told, you're only supposed to use nice words. However, even scripture speaks differently to those that are immature and those that are mature. You see this in 1 Corinthians 2.6, as well as in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 14. So this morning, as I often do, I speak to us here at Blue Point Bible Church as the mature. After I had preached last week, Sister Vicki, as she regularly does, began to inquire more about that which I had shared in the sermon. But what about situations, people, places, or things that require us to say something not so nice? Are you saying, Pastor Mike, that we are always to say nice things and to never have a rebuke, a critique, or an admonishment? Got me thinking. Surely we as Christians do not want to be guilty of calling bad good, right? It's rewarding to have such inquiring after the message, to urge myself, to urge us toward maturity in our understanding and application. This should be highlighted as walking worthy of what we call a thinking faith. After I, another example of maturity and walking worthy of a thinking faith that is evident among us is the individual learning each of us do. I can only speak for myself, but I know that I am always blessed by the recommendation of books, studies, articles, and of course the questions that many of you bring up. And yes, I say that as a young man who has been blessed by the clear and evident maturity that is here at Blue Point Bible Church. Glory to God. 
A while back, Sister Denise shared an article with me entitled, We Need Hatred in the Church. Interesting title. I believe that article not only highlights some of what Vicky had inquired about, I believe it also helps balance out the details that I shared last week. The article began with a quote from the late Catholic Bishop Morlino, who in response to the abuse scandal within the Catholic Church said this, Such wickedness should be hated with a perfect hatred. Christian love itself demands that we should hate wickedness just as we love goodness. In said article, Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 was brought up. And it's speaking about the Apostle John commending the church at Ephesus, where he says, I know your deeds, your labor, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate those who are evil. And you have tested and exposed as liars those who falsely claim to be apostles. Notice these people at Ephesus are being you know, commended for their not tolerating evil and testing and exposing the wickedness that was in their midst. Liars who falsely claimed to be apostles. And again, this is commended. So surely marking out wicked men or women cannot be classified as Lashan Hara, evil speech. Well, not always, at least. I'd like to bring us back to the words of Jesus that I brought up last week in Matthew chapter 12, specifically verses 34 through 37. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings good treasure, that which is good. The evil man brings out evil treasure from that which is evil. But I tell you that every careless word people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned." For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It is in the things we immediately want to say that expresses what is in our heart. So, understanding this maturely reveals that it isn't necessarily about the words that are coming out of your mouth. But in maturity, we must focus on what is in our heart. It's really a matter of attitude. Yes, there's a time when sharp words become the right speech, which I will actually share here in a moment. But whether they are right speech and therefore are considered good speech, Lashantov, is determined by what is in one's heart when one says these things. This is why we must continually move on to maturity, because only a mature mind will be able to examine the heart behind the words one is using, especially when it comes to matters of rebuke or admonishment. Some rabbinical wisdom that pertains to this point is found in Jewish teachings. For the real concern of the Torah in forbidding evil talk, even when true, was the evil intent involved in wishing to disgrace our fellow and enjoy his discomfort. But where the intention is to save our fellow beings from bad influences, it is plain that it is permissible and even obligatory to use strong words. But in these circumstances, it would seem that it is necessary for the speaker to explain the reason for speaking ill of his fellow, so that the listener would not be misled 
or go too far in thinking that this was inconsistent behavior or thinking that this is now Lashan Hara, that they are, they are now speaking bad about someone, but instead provide reasons why you might use such sharp words. To coincide with these wise words of the late Bishop Morlino, we read in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, Thou shalt not hate your brother in your heart. You should rebuke your neighbor and not encourage him to sin. So yes, contrary to popular thought, rebuke is an expression of love. I'd like to share some other thoughts from the rabbis in this regard. Rabbi Yehuda Hanahasi said this, A person should love rebuke, since as long as there is rebuke in the world, ease of mind comes to the world. Good and blessings come to the world, and evil departs from it. As it says, those who find rebuke, those who rebuke find favor, and a good blessing falls upon them. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 25. Rabbi Yonatan said, Whoever reproves their neighbor without any ulterior motive, again, you're noticing the keys that are standing out here, um, the, without ulterior motive is worthy of a portion of the Holy One. As it says, one that rebukes, another finds favor. And not only that, God draws over that person a cloth of love. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 23. Rabbi Yossi ben Kanina said, A love without reproof is no love. Another rabbi had remarked that reproof leads to peace. A peace where there has been no reproof is no peace. The New Testament is replete with advice to encourage and build up one another. Speak the truth in love, but prayerfully, as you're already noticing, speaking the truth in love may require rebuke, admonishment, and correction at times. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read that all scripture is given and is God-breathed and useful for exhortation, correction, rebuke, admonishment, doctrine, instruction, and training in righteousness. So the source of our rebuke will always come from the scriptures. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9, in talking about the role of a minister, it says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others in sound doctrine and rebuke those who oppose it. So we see how sharp words are the right words when used in certain contexts of life. John the Baptist refers to those who were coming to his baptism as a brood of vipers, calling them snakes, which sounds like strong language. Jesus calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which surely wouldn't have been received as nice words. And even Jesus even refers to Simon Peter as Satan, tells him, get behind me, Satan, when Peter has in mind the things of man rather than the things of God. Surely, they used such words to place emphasis on the importance of what they were saying. There does come a time when marking out certain men and or women using such strong words against them as to provide rebuke and reproof becomes necessary. Ultimately, the goal is that our listeners, those that we are rebuking and those that may be hearing the rebuke, would be saved, healed, or corrected by our words. Also, sometimes this may require calling out their wrongdoings. 
And surely this cannot always be labeled Lashan Hara, or evil speech. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul rebukes the congregation for going along with, allowing, worse yet, boasting in the sins of a man who was gathered with them. This man was sleeping with his father's wife, presumed not to be his mother. The apostle highlights what this man has done, how it is not good, and how it affects the other saints around them, and charges that he should be served over to Satan, which would be church discipline. In the same respect, Jesus explained how we should go about correcting or rebuking those who have come against us, who have done something wrong to us. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says that if a man offends you, you are first to go to him yourself and seek to you know, mediate that situation. If he doesn't listen, you're to take someone else. Well, right there, you would have to tell that next person the bad deeds about this person. So that cannot be. Jesus is not instructing us to become guilty of Lashan Hara, evil speech. Because ultimately, I know nobody in this room wants Surat, right? That, that skin disease that we were reading about. Um, so Jesus says that if they do not listen to the two of you, then you are to take it to the church. And then everybody's involved. So now you've got to get everybody involved in this issue. Therefore, there is such instance wherein making remarks about someone, if they're bad and marking them out, is not Lashan Hara. Another case of marking out certain men, which is biblically prescribed as the way to deal with those who have been proven to be false teachers and are intent on causing division in the church and society, is found in 3 John. Gaius is told about two men, Diotrephes and Demetrius. John writes, Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing. There it is. He will call attention to what he is doing. He will mark it out. Spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so, meaning come together with the church, and puts them outside of the church. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. And then you have Demetrius, who is spoken of well by everyone, and even by the truth itself. We also speak well of him and know that our testimony is true. So you see, John here is not guilty of I don't know anybody that would say John is guilty of Lashan Hara because he's marking out diatrophies and saying this is a bad man. If you follow after him, you're going to go from bad to worse. He's an imposter. I love what 4th century church father Augustine of Hippo said. Now it is disgraceful and a dangerous thing for an infidel to hear a Christian presumably giving the meaning of holy scriptures yet talking nonsense on these topics. And we should all take such means to prevent such an embarrassing situation in which people show up vast ignorance in Christianity and laugh it to scorn. Now, I know a lot of people, unfortunately, that I would mark out as talking nonsense on biblical topics and therefore listening to the words of Augustine, I do believe that I should take all means by preventing such an embarrassing situation to the Christian faith. I make it my duty to obey Titus 1.9, to encourage the saints in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who oppose it. Our image in the world is so important. We truly are the people that are bringing forth the healing of the nations. Therefore, of importance is not only acceptable 
doctrine and good practices, but also rebuke and correction in regards to those that say they are of us, and yet, as Augustine had marked out, talk nonsense on biblical topics. These are matters of our love toward God, of our love for the brethren in the body of Christ, and even our love toward those that are stuck in error. John Calvin, 15th century church reformer, took this a bit further when he said, if the spirit of meekness is reigning within us, notice that, if the spirit of meekness is reigning within us, we may handle the wicked according to their deserts, as if it were out of the mouth of God. Strong words. So in other words, when we're speaking about those wicked men, we should respond, if they're going to be wicked, then we need to mark them out as wicked and use strong words as if it were the words of God. But again, he highlights, if the spirit of meekness is within us, bringing us back to that original point, that it depends what's in your heart. So yes, we must guard and tame our tongues. We must be wise and loving with our words. But we must also not shirk responsibility to defend the faith, which at times will require the mature to use the right words. Two weeks ago, I had used the phrase has been to refer to another individual in the body of Christ, a man many of us know, a man who I believe is guilty of distorting clear doctrine and thus confusing others. I do believe the words fit his stature. A has been is one who has gone out of importance. They've wandered away from the truth. They were important at one time, held maybe a certain stature, and now they've wandered away. I believe those words were fitting. So you might say, I've been examining myself and weighing my words. John Calvin also said, those whose habit of uttering falsehood to God and of deceiving themselves, who hold on to hypocrisy and pretension instead of the reality, ought to be urged with greater sharpness than other men to true repentance. And sometimes sharp words are needed. In the same vein, another commentator noted, Sometimes it is necessary to use an extremely sharp tone to get through to a hypocrite. The hypocrite is an expert at creating an alternative universe wherein they believe they can live consistently. The use of mocking is designed to get through to them. Perfectly, I've demonstrated in this part two, if you will, of last week's message that there is surely a delicate balance. We, the mature, must understand when it comes to using the right words. The right words are Lashan Tov, good speech. It's a delicate balance that many ever come to refer to as the art of rebuke. Highlighting a previous point I made, John Calvin said, if the spirit of meekness is reigning within us, meaning the only way we can walk worthy of such loving rebuke is to start with our heart. And as I said earlier in the message, Make sure that your attitude is right because it's a matter of attitude. Love must be the source and substance of all that we do. Lovingly marking out the things which offend our Lord Jesus Christ is indeed required, especially pertaining to good doctrine and the practice of the church. Hatred is not love's opposite. Indifference is love's opposite. The problem is that many times we simply don't care May we repent of not caring enough to say something is wrong. Because when done in love, even rebuke is an expression of good speech. And in many cases, 
is the most loving thing we can do. Please join me in prayer. Mighty God, Lord, I thank you for the wisdom that is evident within this body. I thank you for the simplicity of Scripture, Lord, that we can go and we can glean insight, we can gain all that you've given to us pertaining to life and godliness. If we would move beyond ourselves and seek your true, pure wisdom, Lord. Lord, again, I thank you for the maturity that is evident in our church, the maturity that challenges messages, the maturity that challenged this message and said, well, if we're always to be nice, how do we make way with rebuke and chastisement as the scriptures call us to? May we be convicted, Lord, that our good speech will require right words. In some context, we are always going to be loving and nice. But in other contexts, Lord, your word compels us to mark out those that cause division, to rebuke those that bring forth bad doctrine and practices, and all of this in a loving manner. Go before us, Lord. Allow us to seek the heart that glorifies you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.